Hi, everyone, and welcome back to Gathering Ground, a semi-weekly podcast where with each new episode, a special guest and I explore what it looks like to thrive and survive in the nonprofit industrial complex. I'm Mary Morton, president of Morton Group, LLC, a national consulting group based in Chicago, where we work with nonprofits and foundations. This week, we're very lucky to be sitting down with Yolanda Caldera Durant. Yolanda is vice president at Fund the People, a group that seeks to maximize investment in the nonprofit workforce, something I think you all will agree is vital in our current burnout culture, particularly in the nonprofit sectors. Prior to starting her journey with Fund the People, Yolanda worked at the Connecticut Health Foundation, the Annie E. Casey Foundation, and the Fairfield Community Foundation. In addition to her foundation work, Yolanda has served on the board of Project Access New Haven, is an advisor on the board of Progresso Latino Fund at the Community Foundation of Greater New Haven, and is a member of Beta Sigma Alpha, a community sorority focused on supporting Latinas in the pursuit of higher education. Welcome, Yolanda. We are so glad you could join us on Gathering Ground. Mary, thank you for inviting me, and I'm really happy to be here with you today. Great. So, you know, before we start talking about Fund the People, let's talk about your background, uh, which we've just, of course, um, heard about with regard to foundation work. I'm curious to know, how did you get to philanthropy? How how did you mo- make that move in your career? Yeah, so... Uh- So when I was uh, an undergraduate student at the University of Connecticut, I didn't know philanthropy existed. And it was actually through a process of work experience and um, exposure that I became aware of the philanthropic sector. Um, So prior to joining philanthropy, um, as you briefly mentioned, I worked in human services and youth development and child welfare um, at both nonprofits and at a government agency. Um, But after working for several years in human services, I decided to go back to school and to pursue my master's degree in order to um, expand my own career uh, trajectory and my opportunities. So uh, I decided uh, to pursue the master's in nonprofit management at the new school. And at the same time, I was also a grant writer at the Salvation Army of Greater New York. So both the master's degree program and my work at the Salvation Army, um, that was where I actually learned about foundations. So I actually got to meet people who worked at foundations. Uh, I learned that they had money and that they could help support um, the work that the nonprofits I was involved with uh, were doing. And um, in particular, there was a course at the new school about organized philanthropy. And I learned all about foundations and how they were established here in this country. Um, and this really piqued my interest because I thought, you know, I have the potential to have a macro level impact um, on the communities that I care about and in the work that I care about by influencing where grant dollars go. Um, so that was um, that really sparked a, a, an interest in me. And, you know, so that was it. Like I was in my 30s. That's how I found out about it. And then. While I was um, finishing up my master's, I was a grant writing consultant for a youth leadership organization. And the executive director of that nonprofit told me about a program officer job that had opened up at the Fairfield County Community Foundation. And she encouraged me to apply. She said, you really should go for this. Um, You know, you went to school, you studied nonprofit management, 
And, you know, this sounds like a really good fit for what you want to do. And she also knew I was interested in that kind of work. So the connection with that executive director, my professional network, and also my community knowledge of, of the local area that the community foundation worked in, and the degree, I think were all helpful in allowing me to land that job. And and open the door and open the door, frankly, to my work in philanthropy. That's wonderful. I, we're going to come back to a little bit of that um, conversation with regard to how someone encouraged you, right, to apply mm-hmm. for a position. Because, as you know, as well as I do, right, that often um, that's what is needed, particularly for I think women of color, uh, when we think about yes. doing something that is outside of what we've been doing, when we think about making that next step in our career, someone encouraging us to do it is so important. And certainly we find as executive search consultants that we often um, have to really make sure that people understand when we look at what they have done on paper, we absolutely think they can apply for a position. And that's not often the case. And and, and I know you're familiar with the, with the race to lead report and and that, yes. uh, you know, many of us will not apply for a position, meaning folks of color and in particular women of color, unless we have every single uh, qualification or most <laughs> of them. And that is not something that the majority population experiences. And so um, I think that was right. so important in terms of the story that you just shared that um, having a mentor, having someone who encourages you, having a supporter really does make a difference in terms of how people move through these positions. So when you went into philanthropy, what was your initial reaction? I'm just curious before we move into talking about Fund the People. What was your reaction to philanthropy? You went on to work not at one, but several foundations. And 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 what were your reactions? I had a certain expectation of what philanthropy would be like. I think mainly because I had been living and working in New York City. And it was really m- much more diverse there, racially, ethnically, gender-wise diverse than it is in Connecticut. So that was um, that was a shock to me, a little bit of a shock, not a tremendous shock, um, but I was the only uh, Latina that worked in a grant making capacity at the foundation. Um, there was another um, Latina professional there um, who who worked as a support staff person, um, and that was it. We were it, and everybody else was um, white. So that was. Uh, you know, it was, it was real. Like it was, right. that's how right. it was. Right. Um, that was the environment. And as I moved through uh, the world of philanthropy, I found that I was frequently the only woman of color in the room. Um, and at times it felt, um, you know, difficult to really kind of be myself in that space. Um, so I really, found um, that it was important to build a network of other women of color working in philanthropy. And I was fortunate to be involved with Hispanics in philanthropy at the time. So I had that affinity group to connect with and to feel like I wasn't the only one, you know, doing this work. Um, So that, that was, um, that was a, a lesson. I think the other lesson also was the amount of power that comes with working in philanthropy. And I remember being told that when you join a foundation, your phone calls will always be answered. You will always be the funniest person in the room and you will always um, give, uh, you will, your advice will always be taken, even if it's not asked for. And that That was, you know, (laughs) that's absolutely. Yeah. And, and, 
Yeah. So that, that was really, uh, it was helpful to know that because I have a, a humble personality. Like I, I, I don't think I was ever completely comfortable with that power um, because I understood what it meant. And I understood that, you know, there were people who were benefiting from um, the foundation support and others who were never going to get in the door, um, no matter how much I advocated for them. So that was real. And I experienced it. And, you know, it was very eye opening to, to know that and to, to live that. And so the work that you're doing in Fund the People is not theoretical. You've had these experiences. You know what it's like to work in a nonprofit and you know what it's like to exist in a foundation. And and I think that that was, in my mind, from now knowing that part of your background, it makes perfect sense that you would be working um, on, on you know, with Fund the People. So let's talk about Fund the People. Let's talk about sure. um, how it came to be. Um, that w- I would love to start there. How did Fund the People get started? So um, I'd like to acknowledge uh, the founder and CEO of Fund the People, Rusty yes, Stahl. We've had Rusty and, in, in uh, Chicago, of course, just last fall at a conference. That's right. Yeah. So so uh, it was Rusty's vision to um, basically establish Fund the People um, because of a need he saw um, for better investment in nonprofit professionals and nonprofit organizations. And you know, the the work really evolved from uh, Rusty's uh, work in founding emerging practitioners in philanthropy and really understanding that, um, you know, as important as a nonprofit workforce is, that there wasn't enough attention being paid to how to best support um, nonprofit professionals to build strong organizations. And frankly, you know, looking at the nonprofit workforce from you know the executive director all the way to frontline and support staff because it takes all of those professionals and all of those people to make the nonprofit organization operate effectively. Um, and you know he did extensive research into um, you know what what is the level of investment that philanthropy um, is making in supporting talent. And the reason um, for the focus on philanthropy is because foundations have the ability to um, invest in nonprofit organizations and to change their practices if they see fit. And we've actually um, seen that with philanthropy um, in several instances. So that that's why we decided to start there. But, um, but yeah, so Fund the People is the national campaign to maximize investment in the nonprofit workforce. And as far as the research that, um, that Rusty and his colleagues conducted, um, even though um, the nonprofit workforce employs over 10 million people and is the third largest workforce after manufacturing and retail, only 1% of foundation dollars currently support nonprofit talent. So that is um, a significant underinvestment given um, the vital role that nonprofit professionals um, play in our society. Well, absolutely. And I, I, one of the things I just want to read is, is a, a brief overview um, to just add on to what you've said. There's a reason, of course, why the line item uh, in your nonprofit operating budget is the largest line item, right, for, for staff. There's a reason for that, right? That is where the majority of our resources go. And to your point, while that's where the majority of our resources go in nonprofits, it is, in some cases, um, not the area where we spend any kind of investment. And so uh, just reading from your materials, nonprofit professionals are the bedrock of civic life. 
Our communities, environment, and economy all benefit when nonprofit leaders have the support to not just survive, but to thrive. Indeed, investing in the nonprofit workforce is the best thing we can do to increase performance and impact across the social sector. It is also a matter of ensuring social justice within the very organizations that work for social justice out in the world. And I think when I when I read that and when I learned about Fund the People, I have to say that I was so excited that a group like this existed because these are the things that I talked to other nonprofit leaders about. These are the ideas that I talked to other consultants about. And I had never seen an organization that was more or less taking it on, that was going to address it and to address it in a deep and thorough manner. So what I would love to do is to make sure that people understand the extraordinary tools that you have on your website and the ways that they can carry the message forward, if you will, about from the people as it relates to talent investment, because I think that is a huge area um, that we still have to conquer in terms of how we support nonprofit professionals. I just had the conversation we were talking before we started recording um, earlier today with um, with staff from University of Chicago who are looking at developing a new program. And um, and they were asking about you know what we see in executive search and things that you know down the road we think might be helpful in terms of how people come to the nonprofit sector. And in many cases, we still know that people are not being prepared, right? We know that people often will get a promotion and and because they've done one thing well, they move on to the next level and it's like, hey, great, you got a promotion, see you later. Uh, but we're not providing um, the support and the talent investment, nor are we we doing any real work around succession planning, but that's another that's another right. that's another episode. We'll talk about succession planning. Okay. But but talk a little bit about the tools that you've developed and how the work gets done at Fund the People with communities around the country. Sure. Um would be happy to do that. So I want to start by just telling you what talent investment means. So it means the intentional deployment of resources to support and develop professionals and leaders in the nonprofit workforce. And that's really where it all starts. Um, and, and as, as you uh, so, so aptly described, um, Mary, although professionals um, are able to, you know, get jobs in the sector, they, um, th- those that are promoted, um, you know, are excited about the opportunity to move up. They really um, are not getting the training and the support that they need to be successful in those roles. So, um, so fund the people um, to, to really carry out our work. We we do it in three ways. Um, we have three strategies. The first is we make the case to funders and nonprofits about the value of investing in um, the nonprofit workforce, which is chronically underinvested in. Um, secondly, we equip funders for action um, and nonprofits by providing data, learning opportunities, tools, and promising practices. And then thirdly, we're building a movement of champions, adopters, and influencers to make investing uh, in nonprofits an effective practice for funders and nonprofits. And one of the ways that we help to move this work is through our free toolkit, um, which you um, were referencing earlier as far as like the resources that we have. And this comprehensive toolkit um, is available for funders, nonprofits, consultants. Um, all you have to do is provide 
your name and your email address and you can unlock this content. And um, the reason that we wanted to make these tools available is because as um, Rusty was going around the country talking about talent investment, um, he would always get questions from funders and nonprofits about, okay, I agree with what you're telling me. Um, I'm really interested in doing this. So how do I do it? So that led to the creation of the toolkit. And we have over 30 resources in the toolkit um, that include uh, resources to make the case, discussion guides, um, how-to guides, stories from the field, which are uh, examples of six different foundations and their nonprofit grantee partners that are actively practicing talent investment. So you can learn how different foundations that include community uh, foundations, also um, private foundations, family foundations, and even health conversion foundations are actually investing in talent. Um, and also in the toolkit, we have evaluations that demonstrate the return on investment of investing in nonprofit talent. So there's a lot in there. Um, and we're really excited about what we were able to include in there. But we um, we actually have like three entry points into the toolkit. Um, so the first is um, funder curated content. The second is uh, content that's curated for nonprofits. And then the third portal brings you to the entire toolkit. Um, so we, we wanted to help kind of guide people as they enter that toolkit. Um, and we also have uh, webinars that um, include presentations from funders and nonprofits about talent investment. So it's not just reading the resources, it's also um, taking advantage of the different video clips that we have um, embedded in the toolkit. Well, as you said, um, there is just enormous amount of material that's available on the website. And just for your name and an email, you can have access to this information. So I want to just make sure that our, our listeners know fundthepeople.org is the website. And Yolanda, we're going to come back to talking about some of those tools, but I'm curious from the work that you've been doing for the last several years with Fund the People, why don't nonprofit professionals receive the talent investment support they need? Why, why, why is there a deficit with regard to that kind of support? Yeah. So the deficit exists because we as a field are not talking about this. We're not acknowledging that nonprofit professionals and organizations need to be invested in, in this way. Um, you know, I'm, I'm sure you're well aware of the discussion about, um, you know, keeping nonprofit overhead low. So talent is overhead. Staff salaries are overhead. And if we don't invest in those things, um, we can't operate as nonprofit organizations. We can't achieve our, our outcomes if that's not part of the funding that we receive um, as organizations. Um, and also the other part of this um, is that foundations are not asking the question. They're not asking the question about Hey, nonprofit, um, you know, partner or nonprofit applicant for those that are applying for funding. What do you currently do to invest in the talent of your staff? Um, how do you uh, compensate your staff? You know, what does your salary and benefits package look like? Um, you know, what do you invest in staff development? How do you support leadership teams? Like, if those questions aren't being asked by the funder. Um, sadly, you know, it's not seen as a priority um, by by the foundation. And and the other on the other part of this, um, you know, if nonprofits are not 
looking internally at their own organizations and really understanding what the needs of their staff are in terms of their talent. Um, you know, and it's it's like this vicious cycle that's created where funders are not asking and nonprofits aren't telling. So, you know, we have to change this dynamic if we are going to increase investment in nonprofit talent. You know, and if funders start asking the question and start making those resources available, then they're they're increasing the supply of those resources for nonprofits. And if nonprofits are asking for that type of support and actually doing the internal work to identify what their talent needs are, then the demand is built up. So it, it's like this, you know, you know, funders are not asking, nonprofits are not sharing, and there's there's the power dynamic. Like nonprofits don't want to seem vulnerable and share what's going on internally at their organization if that's going to make them look bad to their funder. So, you know, it's also about survival. Like they don't want to lose the grant funding. Um, and then on the part of the funder, how can they work to build trust and to really mitigate that power dynamic? So the nonprofit feels comfortable sharing what's actually happening um, and the and is able to really articulate what their talent uh, needs are. Well, I guess when I think back to working in nonprofits and working on grants, um, and, and you may have had the similar experience, weren't we more or less um, taught to not talk about overhead and not, and, and that was the first thing that went out of a budget. It's usually marketing and communications and any kind of staff or professional development. It goes out the door, right? The moment there's any kind of a budget shortfall or concerns coming about about a budget. And so I think trying to get that mindset, um, a different mindset in place is, is difficult. I think it's difficult. And I think it's hard for organizations to understand that a funder may really care because again, it means changing what many of us have been taught as we've come up in nonprofits in terms of how you write a grant, what you put in a budget, how you pad certain line items to get those other items that you know they're not going to fund, right? I mean, how do we get groups to understand and what has been your process in terms of getting groups to understand you can ask for it. And if you don't ask for it, we can't stop this cycle, right? We can't stop the cycle. We also need foundations. We need foundations to be open to hearing about it and not to, to your point, penalize uh, an organization because they've been vulnerable enough to say, we really need some staff support here in this area. Um, We're thinking down the road that our CEO or executive director is going to retire. We'd like to start now on developing the internal bench we need so that when this person leaves, we can have someone step into their role ideally. I mean, it's wonderful when that can happen and you can promote from within. However, what I find uh, quite often as we're doing our work uh, in, around the country is that there is no succession plan and there has been no real work to address the internal bench that an organization needs so that they can have a smoother transition. So um, so one foundation that we highlight in the toolkit is the Pierce Family Foundation. So Marianne Philbin and her team, they've been supporting um, talent investment for many years, and they um, they support nonprofit organizations that work um, uh, delivering um, services to uh, the homeless population and also um, overall working in the housing um, space um, in in uh, the nonprofit um, in the nonprofit sector in in the Chicago area. 
and they they are very thoughtful and creative as to how they actually invest in talent. And they really started by asking their grantees, what do you need? So they didn't assume that they knew what their grantee partners needed. Which many funders do. Can we just stop there and say that many funders do assume that they know what the grantee partners need? And it would be wonderful if they would just ask. (laughs) That it's, yep. And if there's anything that funders take away from this conversation is to ask the question. Don't assume that you know, ask grantees what it is that they need and start from there. And that's really what the Pierce uh, Family Foundation did. And they, um, you know, they, they're big supporters of capacity building, but, you know, beyond capacity building, because when I think about that um, practice, it, it's really around kind of strengthening the different functional areas of nonprofits. When we talk about talent, we're talking about the people that actually deliver that capacity. So um, I think that's an important distinction. And um, yeah, so so the Pierce Family Foundation, they, um, they talk with their grantees about what their needs are. They have supported um, uh, compensation um, work to help uh, their grantees understand what the salaries, uh, what basically like what the, the status of, of competitive salaries are in the nonprofit field for various positions. They, they invested in um, the Top Talent Institute to help develop executive directors and managers in the field. Um, they, also, um, so they also launched um, an initiative to help match nonprofit professionals with each other to learn about different functional areas, including technology, uh, fundraising and development, technology, governance, and that's, um, you know, and that actually transferred over to Forefront in, in Chicago and is still up and running. And just understanding, like, the modest investment that it took to get that off the ground and how impactful it's been for nonprofits in the area, um, you know, it just shows you that there's a lot of ways that funders can support talent investment uh, in creative ways. And and another thing that Fund the People encourages foundations to do is look at what you're currently doing to invest in talent. Maybe you're investing in a leadership uh, fellowship program, but are there other ways that you could use those resources to further support talent development across organizations and even across grant across grantees that your organ your foundation supports? Well, those are all great examples, and I just want to say that um, we are um, working. We have worked, I should say, with the uh, Pierce Family Foundation. I actually was one of the executive coaches for Gabriella Roman, who is featured in uh, some of those materials and um, just had an opportunity to see her recently. And we're going to reconnect over coffee, but she's doing really well. And um, Mm -hmm. she really credits the support she received from the Pierce Family Foundation. She was an interim director who then became the full-time executive director at her organization and has been there for several years now. Um, The other piece that I will say about the Pierce Family Foundation is they are absolutely um, walking the talk, if you will, in terms of how they're modeling leadership. I don't know if you're aware of the fact that now they're Mary Ann uh, Philbin, who was the executive director, is now co-directing with Heather Parrish, the program director. They're both co-directors. And I thought, this is a wonderful story. I'm probably going to have them on as well, because this is what (laughs) we want organizations to do, right? To, To look at your internal capacity, look at ways that you can develop bench 
and when you can to promote from within. And so I just think it was really wonderful. We uh, This was announced in December and we're all really excited for Heather, who um, is, you know, just done an extraordinary job at Pierce. It just seemed like it made a lot of sense. And we hope that other foundations yeah. will take a look at this and think, hey, this may be something we can think about as we think about how we're going to move forward, mm-hmm. how we're going to share leadership. Let us model how we share leadership and how we share it with people from very different backgrounds. That That is really um, a great example of how the Pierce Family Foundation kind of continues to, to really try new things, um, you know, establish new practices that can hopefully influence the rest of the field. Absolutely. We're going to take a short break. Uh, we're going to be right back with Yolanda Caldera Durant. You're listening to Gathering Ground. This is Mary Morton, and we're back in a moment. Hi, everyone. Thanks so much for listening to another episode of Gathering Ground. If you have any questions about any of the topics that we've discussed on Gathering Ground, please feel free to drop us a line at mary at gatheringgroundpodcast.com. Again, that's mary at gatheringgroundpodcast, all one word, dot com. We look forward to hearing from you. Hi, everyone. Welcome back to Gathering Ground. On this episode, we're speaking with Yolanda Caldera Durant, Vice President of Fund the People. So Yolanda, one of the many things that I love about Fund the People is that it is so just right on the money, if you will, right on message with regard to examples and uh, scenarios that it raises in terms of working in nonprofits. And the one that really struck me the first time I looked at the materials was where you talk about um, what often happens, I think, to a new CEO or new executive director where a funder will say, you know, we don't really fund organizations in transition, nor do we fund new executives in some cases. We take what would be described as a wait and see attitude. I am curious as to why you decided to include those kinds of examples in the materials. I certainly have experienced them mm-hmm. and I certainly have clients that have experienced them, but I'm wondering how that came to to you and, and Rusty and your colleagues at Fund the People. So um, yeah, that's a great question. So how we became aware of the wait and see approach was really through research we had done on executive transitions and leaders of color coming into those roles. And what we learned was that when a person of color comes into uh, executive in a, into an executive director position at certain organizations, that the funders are not um, are, are just kind of you know stepping back and just kind of seeing how things develop, and that is really uh, harmful to nonprofit organizations, particularly because um, you know in the middle of a transition, that's really when the nonprofit needs to ensure that they're continuing to get those financial resources to help continue the work, frankly. And it's um, it shows a, a, a risk-averse, if you will, type of behavior that funders would not be kind of, you know, walking right along with the nonprofit during that, um, during that time in their evolution. And the reason it's... Um, the reason we named it is because it's been happening in the field and people are not talking about it. And we really wanted to document that this is a phenomenon that is happening. And, um, you know, we, we have heard about it from nonprofit uh, leaders 
And, you know, it's, it's something that is ultimately harmful, but it's something that funders can change. If they really want to be a true partner to their grantees, that, you know, you have to keep the lines of communication open and, and really thinking about succession planning. And when a nonprofit organization, um, you know, shifts its leadership and a new leader comes in, it's really critical for um, the outgoing executive director or even the executive staff at that organization to help make those connections between the incoming executive director and their funders to, to make sure that there's no interruption in that relationship and there's no interruption in the funding that they receive. And it, it's harmful for the person stepping into that role. Um, and it's harmful ultimately for the organization as a whole to not have that continued support. And, and it's really something that shouldn't be happening in our sector. Have you found funders who are receptive to this idea of funding during transitions and funding uh, new executive staff? Yes, we have. We have, um, we have found that there are foundations. Um, one example is, is a community foundation. It's the community foundation of the Holland Zealand area. And they're, um, they're in Michigan and they actually um, help support um, executive transitions for nonprofits. And they understand the need to support leadership and to support nonprofits that are going through this process. And they understand how challenging it is to, um, you know, to identify um, new leaders and to keep them in place so that the nonprofit organizations have the stability that they need. And they see it as a critical, this foundation sees it as a critical role um, as a funder to help support nonprofits that are going through executive transitions, um, you know, helping to support consultant support um, to support the search, to support the actual transition of that executive director as they come into their new role. Well, that is encouraging. And I hope many, many more follow. Um, one of the things that we do here before we wrap up on Gathering Ground is we we take a few questions from our listeners about nonprofit life, fundraising, diversity, equity, and inclusion, and many other topics. So I'm hoping that you're ready to jump in, Yolanda, and sure. uh, answer a couple of questions. So here's here's the first one. This is from um, Genevieve from Seattle. Um, I've been at my nonprofit for almost six years. I love the work and think our mission is so important, but I find myself hitting the same wall over and over when asking for support, either from my superiors, my supervisors rather, or in mm -hmm. the form of funding to seek out workshops, a mentor, coaching, et cetera. How long should I expect to stay in a nonprofit where I am not receiving any internal or external support? How do I get my organization to take my concerns seriously? What do you think, Yolanda? Yeah, that's um I think that's a really critical question that um that needs to be huh. I think it's a critical question because as a nonprofit professional, um, in order for us to, you know, have the success that we want to have in the field, we need to take advantage of professional development opportunities. We absolutely need to have um support in terms of mentorship and coaching. And it's important that um, that you as a professional are able to talk with your supervisor about the needs that you have to um, advance yourself professionally, to develop your skills, to, to basically continue to be effective at your job. And, you know, 
in my own experience, if I haven't gotten the support that I need and the investment that I need, and my supervisor isn't listening, my organization isn't supporting me, it's time to move on. That's because right. Because time is critical. And, you know, I, in, in my own experience, I've, I've had to move on to move up, whether because there was nowhere for me to go in my organization. Uh, there were no opportunities for advancement because nobody was moving on um, or because I feel like I've done all the work that I can here and it's time to move on. Um, and, you know, I think another thing that we do as like scrappy and savvy nonprofit professionals is we find opportunities to, to advance ourselves and, and our growth by either submitting proposals um, to, to deliver workshops or to be speakers at different um, conferences and, and events and having the sponsors of those events actually pay for you to participate and to speak. And I actually had to do that um, over the course of, of my, um, over my professional life in order to get that support. And there were other organizations that were like, we want to invest in you. Here's your budget. Tell us what you want to do with it. So I, I've actually, it's actually run the gamut for me from DIY professional development, go to all the free workshops that you can to, you know, presenting at workshops and having somebody pay for me to go to actually having a, a, an organization that believes in talent and they want to support you and they want you to, you know, to develop yourself. Well, I love the quote. Sometimes you have to move on to move up because I think, as we know, in many foundations, it's somewhat flat and there may not be a place for you to to move, you know, to for the next level of work. And so you do have to think about leaving. And so that may be what happens to uh, Genevieve from Seattle. Um, sometimes you do just have to make a plan and then move on. So here's something. Uh, here's another question from Joseph from Arlington Heights right here in Illinois. Uh, the Fund the People Toolkit is an excellent resource for us internally at our nonprofit. How do you suggest sharing it with funders to introduce this idea of talent investment? So if you're going to be the brave nonprofit who's going to approach your mm-hmm. one of your funders or several of your funders about talent investment, how do you get them to uh, think about it? How do you introduce it? Um, I love that in some of your materials, you talk about how we bake it in, right? How do we get this really into yep. organizations? How do we introduce it? To a funder, that is an excellent question, um, and just happy to hear that um, that you know that the is it Joseph Joseph yes mm-hmm. that Joseph downloaded the toolkit. So thank you Joseph for doing that. Um, so I think the best way to get started for nonprofits to position themselves to have these conversations with their funders and to introduce them to the toolkit is really for the nonprofit to do their homework internally about what their uh, key talent development needs are and in what areas, and and really think about how that ties to the organization's programmatic and organizational outcomes, because that is the language I think that's important for nonprofits to use when they're talking with their funders about the need for talent investment. So, um, you know, if there's a particular um, program or there's a particular area of work that the nonprofit is doing, that they want to continue to improve and grow and deepen, that takes investment and talent, whether it's professional development, whether it's um, staff development, um, you know, whether it's developing um, a team of staff to actually move something forward. Um, I think it's important 
for the nonprofit to really understand what those needs are so that they can come to their funder. And I would say, you know, who are your close in funders? Uh, frankly, who who is who are the funders that have been supporting your work, um, you know, over the long term, and you know, really thinking about who identifying who those funders are to start having that conversation with them, um, and really helping them understand that the reason that talent is is vital to a nonprofit is for that nonprofit to effectively advance its mission, and it's it's really it it just starts with the question, you know, and and I love that. Joseph and and his organization that they're thinking about how do we bring this up to the funder? So I think you know just really being clear and and I would point uh, Joseph to the um, talking uh, talent for nonprofits discussion guide to really help do some of that internal work before approaching the funder um, to talk about talent and and really being clear about what the needs are and then I would direct um, them to. Uh, talking talent between uh, funders and nonprofits to help guide that conversation. Great. And here's one last question. This is from Cindy in Washington, D.C. On a previous episode, Mary told her guests that we can't care for other people, including our constituents, unless we care for ourselves. This is something that I struggle with all the time. And sometimes I fear my burnout is going to start affecting my ability to do the work. What has kept you in the work? How do you practice self-care? Um, this person is looking for some practical ideas. And, and as I was sharing with you before we uh, came back for our second um, uh, part of our session today, often when I'm doing executive coaching and I ask CEOs and executive directors how they're doing and what are they doing for self-care, they literally dissolve into a puddle of tears because they aren't doing anything and no one has ever asked them how they're doing. No one has ever even raised that question, but it is so clear that they need it. So give us a couple of your practical tips on what you do for self-care. Yeah. Um, I, I think it's really, really vital for um, people working in the social sector to take time for themselves. So some of the things that I do for my self-care is um, I practice yoga so I practice yoga at least once, uh, one to two times a week, and it's really my time. And I go into the yoga studio, I leave the phone in the car. It's just about me. And it's about me um, really breathing and, you know, just reconnecting with my spirit. So, so I've actually been practicing yoga since 2013, and I will always practice yoga. It just really helps to get me centered. Um, the other things that I do is um, I carve out time to, to spend with um, my family and also my girlfriends. They're really, they mean the world to me and I can just like let loose and spend time with them. We go on trips together. We go on walks together. We see the movies. Like it, it's really, it's really like um, essential for my soul to, to have them in my life. Um, and the other thing I like to do is, um, I, I carve out time for vacation, whether I go somewhere or, I, or it's a staycation. I, I shut off my work email. I will not look at it. I won't respond to it. And because it can wait, it can wait until I get back because I'm going to be better because I've taken care of myself when I get back to the work um, and I feel motivated and I feel rested. Um, but, you know, these are lessons that I've had to learn along the way. Um, and it really all started with just understanding that I can't be my best self if I don't take care of myself. Exactly. And uh, as you're saying that, I, and I, I have some practices, I 
do tap dancing and and a few other things. Um, But I think it's so important that we do have some sort of practice and uh, that we put it in place so that when we really need it, when we're completely stressed out, which is going to happen, we have something to fall back on. Um, That's been my experience. And so um, Yolanda, this has been wonderful to speak with you. Um, Really excited about the work that you're doing at Fund the People. Was there a new initiative? I thought when I spoke to Rusty last fall, there was something you were going to be rolling out in, in 2019. Can you tell us about that briefly before we wrap up? Absolutely. So uh, Fund the People this year will be launching our Talent Justice Initiative. And uh, Talent Justice is um, basically where we use talent investment to advance um, racial equity and inclusion across the nonprofit workforce um, and really across the nonprofit career life cycle. So from the point that people um, access um, the nonprofit field um, in entry-level positions to advancing um, in the field to mid-level management, all the way to ascending into positions of of leadership within the sector. Uh, We conducted a survey uh, over the summer of nonprofits and of foundation um, staff to really understand like how um, you know, racial equity, um, how it's impacting uh, the ability for people uh, of diverse race, ethnicity, gender, um, and other um, areas of difference are actually getting into the sector, advancing and taking leadership. Um, and, it, and it's really a critical issue in our sector because we don't have the diversity, um, racial and ethnic diversity that we need in order to really be effective at the work that we're doing. So um, as part of Talent Justice, um, we will be releasing a report and a toolkit in the spring to uh, really lift up these issues and really build on the important research that Building Movement Project has done with their Race to Lead report, and also the research that Equity in the Center has done with their Awake to Woke to Work report. Um, and we, the, the, the unique lens that we bring to this work is really around um, talent investment. Well, we'll have to have you back on to talk about that new project. I love all of these resources. You named some of the groups that we work with a lot around our racial equity work. It's it's just very exciting. So congratulations to you and Rusty and your other colleagues at Fund the People. Thank you again for joining us, Yolanda, on Gathering Ground. More information on Fund the People can be found at their website, fundthepeople.org. Thank you all for listening. You can find Gathering Ground on Spotify and SoundCloud and at GatheringGroundPodcast.com. I'm Mary Morton, and this has been another episode of Gathering Ground. Join us next time on Gathering Ground when we talk with Sean Thomas Breitfeld, the co-director of the Building Movement Project. We'll dig more deeply into their initiative, Race to Lead, and some of their supplemental reports that focus on women of color and hear about the exciting projects coming up in 2019. That's next time on Gathering Ground.